This episode of the Managing Madrid podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. The Olympics, Euros, baseball, major championships, and concerts are all this summer. You know what isn't? A wild and hairy bush. Tame your pubes with help from our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Their fourth-generation performance package includes the brand-new Lawnmower 4.0. And if an athlete treats their body like royalty, why not treat your pubes like Olympic gold? Fellas, do right by your balls and join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com with the code MANAGINGMADRID and with the world starting to open up again. The Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped is here to help you get ready. Inside, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, plus two free gifts, the Performance Boxer Briefs and the Shed Travel Bag. By the way, the Performance Boxer Briefs, probably the most underrated thing in the entire package. I think all of us at Managed Budget have a pair now, and uh, I can just speak to their comfort. They're incredibly comfortable. Highly recommend. So get 20% off plus free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. Achieve pubic glory this year with Manscaped. This episode is also brought to you by Rio Plaza New York Times Square Hotel, which is where you should be booking your stay when you come see us in New York for the December podcast. Myself, Keon Sobani, along with Matt Wiltsey and the legendary Gabe Lesnar will be on stage. At the very least, uh, who knows who else will attend. But make sure to book your spot because New York is one of our biggest markets and spots are already filling up. And that's the December, I believe, fourth weekend. And the link to book your spot will be in the show notes. By the way, the 29 floors of the Rio Plaza New York Times Square Hotel stand out because of their cutting edge and elegant design. And there are more than 600 rooms perfectly equipped with a mini refrigerator, desk, television with multimedia connections, central air conditioning and heating, among other amenities which have been designed to offer you maximum comfort. Included among the hotel's facilities, you will find the fashion bar, the theater buffet, and the capital bar, with its grab-and-go concept characteristic of the city. In addition, the Hotel Rio New York Times Square Hotel next to Times Square The facility fee includes access to the cloakroom, a water bottle in each room, unlimited access to the gym, and several other services. So, Ryu, that's R-I-U, Plaza, New York Times Square. Make sure you book your stay there for the live podcast. Uh, Also, if you head over to managingmadrid.com today, you'll find a bunch of news, as always, including some features. Ewan McTeer has a new article on his series on the relationships of the players with Carlo Ancelotti, and the newest one is his relationship with Martin Odegaard, so all that is on the website right now. My column, uh, which is not controversial at all, Ronaldo versus Messi and unanswered questions, that is also pinned on the homepage. I think today is the last day that will be pinned on the home homepage, so go check it out. And, uh, yeah, today's podcast is Las Blancas. Las Blancas with Grant and Ohm is back. They're going to cover some international break, including Real Madrid Feminino's players. Um, for other content, podcast-wise, patreon.com slash managing Madrid. Lucas and I did two podcasts this week, yesterday's mailbag and Tuesday's Varan situation update, uh, which Lucas reported on. And yesterday's Thursday mailbag over on patreon.com slash managing Madrid was a lot of fun, as it always is. Uh, we answered some hypotheticals, some transfer stuff, and um, just a lot of cool, fun, quirky questions that came our way. We we dove into those. So that's over on patreon.com slash managing Madrid. Coming up, enjoy Las Blancas today, and then see you again on Sunday night for the post-game show for the Rangers game. And let's get started. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog 
and wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Probably better man needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Hello and welcome to Las Blancas Podcast. It has certainly been quite a while, several weeks since we came to you last. We did our little season recap podcast. We said we had some things planned and then it was kind of radio silence from our end. But it's not because we haven't been planning things. We have an awards show podcast that should be coming around next week or so. But we are back today to just have a little brief discussion on round one of the Olympics. Because obviously, a Real Madrid player, Kosovari Aslani, was involved against the United States women's national team with actually a pretty historic result in the sense that her and Sweden snapped the United States' 44-match win streak. And it wasn't just like a small win, a scrappy win either. They demolished the United States, if we're being honest. And that was quite a game to see. So we'll talk a little bit about that. I watched the first half of Chile versus Great Britain. We can maybe kick off with that game and whatever thoughts we have on that. But the focus will be on Sweden, U.S., and what Aslani's role was in that game and that performance. And as I'm sure none of you are surprised, she was absolutely crucial to it. But maybe what's a little interesting is that I think the most important part of her role was defensive rather than offensive, though she was quite good on offense as well. Great Britain, Chile. I only watched the first half, but looked like a pretty comfortable win from Great Britain. I, I don't assume that much changes in the second half uh, because that's when Sweden-U.S. started, so I switched to that game. Grant, what are some of the thoughts you have on that game? I guess possibly Great Britain's threat to, to make a deep run in this tournament and just kind of how they looked against a side that they, they outmatched by quite a bit. Yeah, I was excited to see Team GB play because no one has seen them play in this like iteration of Team GB because they didn't have any open door friendlies beforehand. So I was really interested. I got up early. I'm a big Caroline Weir fan, so I wanted to see how she did. And obviously, you know, no disrespect to Chile, but on paper, Team GB is going to win this no matter what. Ellen White ends up scoring both of the goals. But as for how deep of a run, I don't know if we got a real answer to that because they weren't super tested. I think Chile's midfield was really struggling and lacking. And I didn't think that the midfield of Great Britain was all that good. They had kind of a double pivot of Walsh and Weir, which is interesting because, you know, Walsh is kind of more of a deep lying playmaker, but Weir is usually more of a 10, but Kim Little is in that position. And so they were really, really wing reliant. And I mean, obviously you're going to do that when you have Lucy Bronze, Georgia Stanway, Lauren Hemp, who is exceptional. But I think when they come up against teams like Sweden, potentially the U.S., the Netherlands, I think that midfield could get exploited because it is extremely offensive-minded and they didn't have anything going through the center of the park, really. It was go wide to Hemp. Hemp has a cutback. Ellen White scores. Yeah, and it was good enough versus Chile, right? Like, they have Endler, I think, quite clearly the best goalkeeper in the world. Maybe 
Ann Kattenberger is in the conversation, but I think you and I will probably agree. I mean, I don't want to speak with, speak for you if you no, disagree. No, I, I agree. I got yeah. you. Yeah, so I, I think most people would agree Ender's the best goalkeeper in the world, but it's outside of that position. I don't know what exactly is competitive with Great Britain. Granted, I'm not a Chile, Chile expert, but talking to some Chile fans, because I was quite curious with the defensive strategy, and so I was, I was asking some people about that. And also what their prospects were versus Great Britain. And, and they weren't necessarily surprised by how the game went. Defensively, I think you made an interesting point, like how it wasn't much of a challenge for Great Britain. It seemed like they were kind of caught in two minds, right? Like they didn't want to go all out super high press aside with that kind of talent, right? Because they complain behind you and it's basically over. But they didn't really sit off either. They didn't stay that compact. And if you are trying to play that game. It's super risky and you basically have to strike the perfect balance. And it was just weird to see not that much like aggression pressing wise, but Chile's central midfielders would step like all the way up or try to on that double pivot. And what that, like the the effect of that was like the wide players had to come inside a little bit because they're like, well, our, our central, our midfield is just like pressing all the way up. Right. And they're leaving all the space in the center. So just naturally they come inside. And it, it was just a weird chain effect of like losing everything centrally made you lose out wide. So when the wingers come inside, suddenly one of the best wingers in the world in Lauren Hemp, or certainly one of the most young promising wingers in the world in Lauren Hemp was on the ball. And she just had a field day on the left-hand side. And she's one of my favorite players in the WSL, probably my favorite player for Great Britain. And she, it was just too easy for her. Like, and I, I know she's great. I know, I know it doesn't need to be easy for her for her to make an impact. If I'm remembering correctly, in the second leg versus Barcelona, she put on quite a show, but it's just too easy, and, and she, made, she made things happen. And that was, that was my view of the first half, and it just looked like it was basically a similar story in the second, um, even though I didn't necessarily watch it. Grant, did you have – were you doing a split-screen thing? I mean, obviously, you were paying most of your Oh, no, when the U.S. came on, I okay. didn't watch the second half of this. But uh, I did want to touch on one of your points about kind of that balance between mid block and high press. I think a lot of teams are trying to figure that out because the Olympics is such a weird, weird tournament where you only normally have 18 players. It's an 18 player game day roster this time with 22 players. The IOC kind of extended that, but you play every three days. So that high pressing style is really difficult to maintain throughout a group stage. And then through this knockout round when you're playing every three days. So I think you're seeing a lot of teams trying to juggle their identity of how they want to play with also the demands physically and mentally of this tournament. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And which is why we often see international teams just do the deep block, right? Like, which can be annoying. It can be a bit of a drain. But if you're not going to press, I think you're much better off just just sitting deep you know, being being irritated, a little irritating to watch, irritating the other side, just being hard to break down and doesn't necessarily guarantee you a win or anything, but I think it gives you a chance, especially when there's a huge talent disparity. Speaking of sides that don't have a huge talent disparity, though I think we both agree that the USWT still has like greater individual talent, US versus Sweden. We've talked before on this podcast about how Sweden has kind of been the bogey team for the U.S., not necessarily, you know, beating them, but always pushing them to the limit and making the U.S. work harder than they've had to work against most teams in the past to pull out a a result. 
based on that, how did you feel about U.S.'s prospects going into this game? And how shocked were you by the result and the extent to which Sweden dominated that game, especially in the first half? Going into the match, you know, I always expect the U.S. to win, but that is no disrespect to Sweden. I think if there's any team in the world that worries me, which there aren't many when it comes to playing the U.S., it's 100% Sweden. I knew that this match could go either way, especially after watching that friendly in April. I mean, Sweden did exactly what they did in this match. They dominated us and just got a little unlucky with finishing and with a penalty that was actually outside of the box. And, you know, Sweden ends up doing the same thing again. And I can't say I was surprised by how it played out on the pitch. The scoreline was surprising because I don't believe that the U.S. has lost by more than two goals since 2017. Um, It was the first time they did it in a major tournament since, I want to say, 2017 when they got knocked out by Brazil, like 4-0 or something. But... It doesn't happen often. And as you said in the lead up to this, it broke a 44 game unbeaten streak, which, if you want to be super nitpicky, probably could have ended a little before that when Sweden outplayed them the first time around. I think Sweden's one of the best. I think they've got to be the favorite at this moment from the way that they're playing in form right now. And I, they just thoroughly outplayed, outmatched, outcoached every person that was involved in the United States on this occasion. Yeah, and obviously Sweden being the favorites and being so competitive with the United States has a lot to do with how good their players are, right? Aslani is the obvious one. Sofia Jakobsen being the other one who was only just a Real Madrid player recently, but now at Bayern Munich. But also Fridolina Rolfo, Hanna Glass, who you can argue might be the best right back in the world. And I'm sure Swedish fans would definitely argue that she is. So the talent is clearly there. But I think what separates them from pretty much everyone else and makes them so competitive with this domineering force that's the United States is that for, especially, and even even if we're comparing to a club standard, their tactical organization on defense just blows me away. It's some of the best I've ever seen, probably the best of any international side, if I'm being quite honest, when I just look at the chemistry, the comfort they have, their ability to adapt, to keep the structure stable and execute the spirit of the coach's instructions, not just the instructions themselves, right? Which just demonstrates such a high understanding of what the overarching objective is and what needs to be done in relation with everyone else on the fly and how to achieve it, which it just doesn't really exist at international level. And I think it speaks to how long this core has been together you know, how well they've worked on things over time. And it's just gotten better and better. These are the types of things that just build and become stronger and stronger as long as that core is together, as long as the chemistry continues to develop. And there isn't that big of a drop-off in quality, which obviously hasn't happened with any of these players yet. We're still basically in the prime of their careers. So I think that's what separates them, right? Yes, great players, but it's the organizational side of it that makes things so tough for the United States. I think we saw it in this game, and this will segue nice into the discussion of Aslani, which obviously is is the reason we're we're talking about on this podcast now because she's a Real Madrid player. But they had a four four like one one type defensive structure that was like really obsessed with trapping the United States on the wing, 
and blocking all access to the single pivot. And the United States were playing in a 4-3-3. And I guess what U.S. fans could say had them at a disadvantage you know, going into the game was that Julie Ertz was not going to start in that position. And instead, there was Lindsey Horan. And um, I suppose Ertz is significantly superior in that position, which I had a lot of people tell me. I'm interested on what your thoughts are on that, Grant. And uh, that probably played a role. She wasn't 100% fit. She ended up coming on in the second half. But by then, like things had spiraled out of control. Sweden ended up scoring a set piece early, and it was kind of over by then. But regardless, you had those players on the field. You still had plenty of talent in Mewis. You had Roosevelt playing in basically their best positions in advanced midfield. You had Tobin Heath, Christian Press flanking Alex Morgan. You, you had great talent, and Sweden was just able to shut it all off with that sideline trap and basically having Aslani do, I think, the toughest job out of anyone in that front line, which was first block off all access to Haran, and then also kind of step out and jab and, and threaten Sauerbrunn as she was trying to dribble for it, right? Because Sauerbrunn was left as the free player. If you think about how the 4-4-1-1 marks up against a 4-3-3, very wing-oriented and trying to shunt the ball out wide. And so Asani did a really phenomenal job. Again, some of the best I've seen managing that double assignment. How do I continue to block off Haran while pressing Sauerbrunn and then as necessary coming back to Haran and then resetting to press her and this is where you could see, reacting off of what Aslani was doing, how good, just how good they are, really, in, in, defensively, because obviously that sort of structure is not going to manifest the same exact time every single time because, you know, movements will be fluid, some players will come into different zones, and that's when you need players to react around you to keep things stable. And so... Sometimes Aslani couldn't, you know, come back onto Haran quickly enough. And then so Angel Dahl would, from central midfield, would step up and kind of close her down. And then when Aslani recovered, she would immediately retreat into midfield. Sofia Jakobsen was basically always pressing Crystal Dunn in a way that encouraged her to kind of like dribble, like kind of forward on the sideline. And then Jakobsen would go and tackle her. So she had no way back inside, not only to dribble, but she couldn't make a pass back into Haran, right? So someone didn't always need to come and recover to, to Haran while Aslani was pressing. Sometimes just Jakobsen pressing would deny the pass and Aslani could recover. And it was, it was just this really interesting and, and beautiful, really back and forth managing of that scenario that allowed Sweden to just completely dominate that first half, led to a lot of wide turnovers near the halfway line. And there, there are other issues which we can go to that were also there for the, for the United States, but the main general threat that Sweden had was the counterattack, which came from all those turnovers, which is why I think their defensive performance was like the critical reason for their victory. Grant, a lot of things you could touch on there. Anything you want to say about Aslani's performance, your thoughts on Ertz versus Haran in the single pivot role, and I I'll, guess anything you want to say about yeah, the, I'll, I'll uh, the hit defense them all. general. So as for Aslani, I mean, she is obviously going to be happy with that win, but she could have had three, maybe four assists if it wasn't for bad finishing and some last-ditch Crystal Dunn tackles. She was in that ideal role that we always, always talk about where she's running at the back line and then playing those through balls to um, Blackstinius and Jakobsen. And she played 
through them through multiple times where there were one-on-ones where Sophia Jakobsen waited a little too long to get a shot off. Blackstinius had a, one opportunity that looked like the game was going to be put to bed in the first half, and she shot it right at Alyssa there. So, yes, Aslani did really, really well on the defensive end, but she was also very good on the offensive end. And maybe we don't we aren't talking about that as much because no one turned her creativity into goals. As for the number six position, this is Lin, Lindsay's not a Lindsay's just not a six. She plays for the Portland Thorns. I watch her a lot, a lot. She's a left-sided eight. She really likes to drift over to the left to combine with the wingers, combine with the fullbacks. And she's more of a creative player who is relieved of her defensive responsibilities a lot more in more usually. So when the Thorns play, they do have a single pivot. They play a 4-4-2 diamond, and she usually drops back and helps facilitate possession. So a lot of people, and I was one of them, thought that maybe in this situation we we move Sam Mewis back to the six, which allows her to maybe break some lines with her dribbling and passing. And then Lindsay is able to drop back and kind of offer as that second option in midfield. But as for the comparison with Ertz and Haran, Ertz is by far the best six on the U.S. Women's National Team right now. There are other players in the player pool who maybe could have been called up considering Ertz's injury. But Lindsay's been filling in there and they haven't been tested. They played teams like Mexico when she was at the six, where basically she's not having to defend. She's not having to deal with pressure. She's able to be that creative deep lying playmaker. And, you know, she got tested today. We weren't, they weren't prepared for that. They didn't really have an option for when she wasn't available. They go to the wings and they really overloaded the wings. I thought they did a good job pressuring both Dunn and O'Hara into mistakes and, and, pinning them back so they weren't able to get forward and offer as outlets up the field. I mean, it was, it was a masterclass. Just getting back to that, yeah, Julie Ertz, the U.S. doesn't know how to play without her, really. If you think about all these major tournament games, I mean, ever since after the 2015 World Cup, she's been in that six. She's an iron woman. She doesn't miss games often. And so we were kind of at a lack of a plan B, and then – you had Andy Sullivan, who wasn't called up, who normally plays in that six role. And it's maybe a little oversight to have not brought up a direct replacement for Ertz. That being said, I think even though the United States played horribly in this match, they probably beat most of the teams in the tournament with this performance on that first match day. But Sweden knew what they were doing. They knew how to make the most of their personnel and the weaknesses in the U.S., and they did it. Yeah, I think those are all fair points in terms of the whole debate about the six. Well, it's not really a debate. I mean, everyone I've talked to and you like knows that Ertz is the best option they have in the number six position. But I guess to the extent to which Ertz starting would have changed the game. I mean, if, if she's by far the best option, obviously that's going to have an impact. I'm just maybe wondering and, and knowing the reality I, that you don't, you don't have Ertz, right? I don't um, think that goal. it changes the game. If I'm being honest, I think maybe you have a little better ball progression. Like I was talking about if Haran starts and is able to drop up, but Ertz is a very good defensive six. She's decent in possession. I think she would have faced a lot of the, the same struggles that Haran faced with Aslani in that, um, in that, in that match. Okay, interesting. 
Okay, so I guess that's somewhat of a difference of opinion in terms of stuff I've heard in, in I guess, arguments that she'd make herself more available off ball. I think the second half, she did look a little more dynamic that way, but was an amazing sample. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think that's a whole interesting discussion to have about how, just theoretically, right? How much things would have changed. That's always fun. But to me, looking at the extent to which Sweden seemed prepared for just basically the United States needing to access the six, to come back inside, switch play, do everything they wanted to do. Yeah, maybe Ertz makes it better. But I, I also was taking down a line of thinking, maybe the United States needs to do something a little more dramatic tactically to deal with Sweden. Because we say, okay, this is the first time they lost. But you mentioned in April, they also could have lost then. If I'm remembering correctly, I think both of us kind of concluded that Sweden was as good, if not better than the U.S. that game. And things just kind of fell the United States way, which happens. And great teams have often won that way. Right. But just to say, like, I, I don't think this is necessarily an isolated incident. Right. We know that Sweden are really, really good defensively, that they prepare specifically to disrupt things the United States does. And maybe this is a wake up call that you, you're not always going to scrape by Sweden. Right. And we need to think beyond just trying to scrape by this team to not necessarily destroying them. I don't know if that's possible if both teams are playing at their best and using their best tactics but really doing a much better job of staying in control and being able to impose a little more of your will on the game, which I think requires something different tactically, whether that was moving to a double pivot, which didn't really happen in the second half, but Horan, um, that Ertz was subbed on, Horan kind of played in that left central midfield role that you're talking about, Grant. We saw her dropping off more than Mewis was, or kind of like Mewis was trying to do late in the first half. And so it had a double pivot look at times, but it was still sort of a 4-3-3. So that was one option, or which eventually is the thing I've come to advocate for specifically versus Sweden, is have the pivot drop all the way to create a back three and do your and you use that essentially to disrupt the sideline trap. And I can go on about that for like two hours. I've written a whole article on it. You can go. You can go to my Twitter. I have it pinned. It's for my newsletter. Newsletter tactical rant, where I just basically outline what I think could have been some tactical solutions for the United States versus Sweden in build-up to to combat the specific defensive tactic that Sweden were using. I discussed the merits of the double pivot, but basically end up arguing for that back three in possession and what it can do to to just ask different questions and make make everything a little more complicated for Sweden, right? Because ultimately, just from an abstract perspective, what you want to do against a very good defensive team that is trying to like turn you over in your half or, or, or near it, like around the halfway line, is you, and, and given the complexity of that and the fact that there needs to be a certain level of adaptability from the defensive team, as you want to keep forcing them to adapt more and more and more ask more questions, stretch the limit of their ability to react, to keep the tactical structure intact, and also execute the spirit of the coach's vision to the point where mistakes start to appear. And then that's where the quality of the United States takes over. And that's what I think a back three in possession would have done for this specific defensive tactic. So I have that article. You guys can read it. It'll explain a lot better than anything I can see on this podcast, because I think there's visual elements as well that are necessary to fully capture what I'm saying. 
Grant, I, I kind of said what I wanted to say. We can we can go anywhere from here to wrap up. You can you could talk more about solutions you think you had for the United States, more on Aslani's performance. And maybe we can also talk touch upon Jakobsen as as well and, and the role she had with Glass on that right hand side against Crystal Dunn. Yeah, I've got a couple things to say about that. Um first, I think even if you know Vlaco gets the tactics perfect today, we still don't win. Sweden played amazing. But there's no denying that nobody on the U.S. showed up today. Not a single player played well. And I think that is a silver lining for the U.S. because no one played well. So it's not like you got completely destroyed when you were playing well. You did get destroyed. Like, like Rapino said, they got their asses handed to them. But, and then this is, this is something that's completely specul- speculative. But I'm wondering maybe, and this could just be a coping mechanism for me having to watch that painful mess at 4.30 in the morning. But I wonder if Vlatko thought, let's go out here with a normal 4-3-3. We're going to do everything as we do. Sweden is going to give us a challenge. We know that. We know what they're going to do because they already did it against us. But maybe we can just U.S. women's national team this and still get a result without revealing our hand. Because if everything goes to plan for both of these teams, they will meet again in a game that means a lot more than this, whether it's a semi or a final or whatever, however it works. And if you have that key to unlock Sweden, do you want to give them all that time to game plan around it? I don't know how you feel about that. That may be me like just way overthinking it, but I have faith in Vlatko's tactics and for him to look at that game in April and have Sweden come out with a very similar game plan and him to not have anything like, yes, he got outcoached on the day, but I feel like he has to be scheming on a way to deal with that. Well, I guess, you know, Vlatko more than me, to be quite honest. And I guess that's the most optimistic way of looking at it. I, I don't know how much more I have to add to that. Cause I really don't know. It would be an interesting idea. I it's, it's risky in the sense that I know this this is such a mentally strong group, but still, like, it's one of those things, like, I think Xavi said it once when, like, he was just winning everything with Barcelona and they'd lose a game and then suddenly would lead to, like, a run of losses inexplicably. And it was like they forgot what it was like to lose. And which sounds like a great thing, and it probably is, but it meant that they no longer, like, remembered what was the correct way to react to that. Right. They were so used to winning that when things went against them, you know, just for a certain run of games, they were like, well, what the hell are we going to do now? And the reaction wasn't necessarily amazing, which I guess is a perfectly acceptable pitfall of utter dominance. But it's probably something that, that the U.S. will have to contend with. And I know they said stuff about we have to come out as ruthless as possible. And given the rest of the opponents, I, they'll probably be fine. But but it is a risk in that sense, like. It, it asks questions that haven't been asked for the last 44 games. And now, every, like, and there have been pl- lots of people waiting for this. I don't need to tell you, Grant, you probably saw more of it on social media than I did, especially because you stayed up to watch Canada as well when I went to bed. But people have been waiting to shit on this United States team for a very long time. People oh, have yeah. been annoyed. <laughs> people have been n- not that happy about the utter dominance they've had in international football. 
they were annoyed with some of the celebrations in the World Cup, just finding every way they could to be annoyed about this team, right? And I saw lots of comments afterwards. There's like, can we stop saying the United States are the best team in the world now, right? So, which is not to say that all of that is going to affect them in some hugely negative way, but there now will be the question, are we still the best, right? Just because they lost in such comprehensive fashion, obviously outcoached, out tactic, blah, 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 but also playing so badly, right? There, I think there's a little bit added pressure for these next Olympic games that just didn't exist coming into the Olympics itself, even though they knew that they were going to be playing Sweden first. So if that was the strategy, it's a high risk one. And I'd rather just win the game, but yeah, yeah for you know, sure. Who knows? Right. But, but the interesting, the interesting thing for me, sorry, I just, just the last thing I'm going to say about this is that might've been what Sweden were doing because uh, I don't know what her fitness status was, my God, the Magdalena Erickson. Yeah, I was gonna, Magdalena Erickson, one of the most well-known center backs in the world, slipped my mind there. But she, she, she did not play, and Sweden did not go with the three-four-one-two formation or three-four-three, whatever you want to call it, that they've been using for quite a while now, and everyone just assumed what, what was what they were going to use in the Olympics. And all of a sudden, it was like the four-two-three-one that had, they had been using before that, that you and I watched very early on when we started watching these international games to cover Aslani and Jakobsen. I, I kind of wonder if that was what Sweden were doing. And because they know this strategy works, right? So it's not like they're like, oh, we're going to go to a worse thing. They're like, let's use something that works. And then later on, it, when we probably face the US, we can then throw out our back three, which is what we've been using for most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, who who knows? I mean, these people have they're playing like 5D chess and we're on checkers. So, who knows what they're thinking? I will say for any of the US Women's National Team fans, the last time they lost was against France leading up to the World Cup and then they stormed through the World Cup and won. And I hope that Lynn Williams is on the roster if we get to play Sweden again in this tournament, because I do think that she is a player that Sweden might have a more difficult time dealing with. Fair points. Um, just, I guess, final things to say is, I, I, the other because so I think the defensive component was very huge. It led to a lot of counterattacks that boosted a lot of Sweden's offense, but not all of the goals were scored that way, right? One came from a set piece. One was just Jakobsen going one versus one up against Crystal Dunn after Sweden rotate play from a throw-in and a brilliant cross near post run, you know, just across right in that perfect area in the six-yard box where the goalkeeper can't come. Defenders are unsure about how much they're they're to step forward or backward. Great goal. And the other thing was um, the two versus ones versus Crystal Dunn, where Sophie Jakobsen obviously like. And, and Dunn's a great player, obviously, but I think Sophie Jakobsen won that battle. But in addition to that one versus one superiority on the day, you had Hannah Glass just bombing down the overlap. And I, Crystal Dunn just had a torrid day in terms of she maybe had the toughest defensive assignment out of anyone on the United States national team. Because obviously, we know about the Aslani Jakobsen connection, but basically, especially with the way Aslani will like receive on the half turn and her transition passing was perfect today. I mean, she was finding players on the right every time, and it was just relentless wave after wave of attack whenever Sweden got the ball. And, and they could set up that two versus one undone. And I, I mean, I don't know exactly how I feel about it, because do we really want to make Kristen Press like a defensive winger 
and having her track all the way back on glass when one, obviously she's amazing offensively and probably the best player on the United States women's national team in the, at the moment, but also she facilitates the counterattack if the United States win the ball and they have that outlet with her, Morgan, Heath, and they're away. And I, I just wonder how exactly you deal with that because I have all, all these ideas about what the United States can do in build up, but the two versus one versus Crystal Dunn is still probably going to be there. Do you get a central midfielder to kind of come all the way over? Like, because Perez just, I mean, she wasn't really, you know, tracking back to stop that. And, and that's probably going to be there. Um, you know, whether it's even in a three, four, three or whatever, because Jakobsen will still play on the right with glass probably as a wing back. How, how do you United States address that? Because I think it was a pretty big thing on the day and, and glass had a great game, like her statistical profile. There was a tweet. I can't pull it up now in time, but she had, she had good numbers and she, that's because she was just getting free crosses off all the time. Yeah. And I don't know if that was rhetorical or not, but I made that point about Lynn Williams. And I think that when you play a team like Sweden, you can't have two wingers in press and Tobin Heath, if they're going to kind of do that overload, because neither of them really contribute all that much on the defensive end. You know, Lynn Williams is someone who tracks back well, who presses well, and then maybe it's a lot easier to slide over a midfielder on one side of the pitch behind Kristen Press, where you have Lynn Williams tracking on the other side, or Megan Rapino, who also does a lot of good underrated defensive work. I think maybe Press and Heath together leaves room for those overloads, whereas if you have Press and another winger, then you're able to slide one uh, midfielder over to cover for Press, and then you have a winger and a fullback on the other side. Ooh, I, I don't know how controversial that is. I assume it's somewhat controversial to say drop Tobin Heath. I'm not Am saying I... drop her all the time. I'm saying when you play Sweden like this. Yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know. I'm especially just saying... too, I was wondering, you know, we see Tobin come back against Mexico and, you know, she scores a goal from 35 yards and then she scores in the next game. But she hasn't been tested against Sweden. Like she hadn't yeah, played yeah. for like six months. So... Uh, it was just an idea that I had that maybe that is a way to deal with that because I mean, there's no denying when press and Heath are on the field, you are not getting a whole lot of defensive help on the wings and usually they don't need it. But in this case against Sweden, we definitely did. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not even saying I disagree with you. I actually, I actually think it's a valid idea. I'm just, maybe it's a hot if take you, though. <laughs> if you, if you tweeted it out right I'm not going to tweet anything, dude, the, the press and Heath fans are, are something else. The Kristen Press fans, especially. Well, as, yeah, I'm not talking about dropping Kristen Press. If you have 37 <laughs> goal of involvements in 38 games, like you're starting. Yeah, I mean, she, she's the best player on the team. <laughs> yeah, 100% um, right now. So I just more stuff, I guess, about Aslani. So I mentioned her transition passing, which has been a thing, honestly, that we've nitpicked in past Sweden performances where we just kind of felt, okay, maybe three or four instances, they could have been more efficient on a counterattack. I just really didn't spot any of those moments today. Like some, and some of the transition passes were crazy, like receiving lofted balls on her chest and then just turning in one movement on the volley passes out wide. She, she had one of the best games of her Dude, life. I think she and was I, I think I, I agree with you. Like when she didn't have those assists, that's probably every, no one is going to, you know, say two years from now, this is one of the best games she's ever played because she doesn't get the assists. But when you combine the defensive impact, with just how efficient her actions were in transition and probably the key passes, expected assists and, and all that stuff. Like 
it's it's maybe the best game I saw her play since like that three minute hat trick she had for Real Madrid. Dude, you know you want to this whole time I'm just like in despair writing multiple articles about these games, and I was just like from Aslani and from Jakobsen, I was like, where is this been? <laughs> like, where was this all Real Madrid season? Yes, you guys both had good performances, but we never saw performances like this, especially with the synergy they had. And I was like, this has got to be some overall Osnar troll where he sucks the life out of both of them throughout the entire season. And then they show up and just murder the women's national team. And he's just like, screw you, Grant. Yeah, we do tend to see, I think, 10% more of a Slani in the national team because it it is just a lot more suited for her. Um, we saw like defense. 100% more of Jakobsen, yeah. though. Yeah, uh, she, I, we didn't see say. like her play like this all season. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been a long time since we've seen Jakobsen be this efficient in one versus one in cross. Even, no, granted, even again, for Sweden, like we've yeah, covered all yeah. their matches. She has not looked exceptionally like good for Sweden in recent uh, matches. And like it was just one of those matches where everybody for Sweden knew the stakes and they turned up. Yeah, and I, I will say that synergy we saw between them may be a little wistful, maybe not for a lot of what we saw this season, the second half of the season, but it's not like we never saw you know what that synergy did for us, especially the first half of the season. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I will say that, yes, she also Sweden is a lot more suited for Jakobsen and that they set her up in isolation. She gets to play on the right wing, but I agree with you, like, I've watched recent Sweden games. Both you and I have been trading Spain and Sweden back and forth for a while now, and she has not necessarily looked significantly better for, for Sweden like Aslani has. And then she comes out and she has this game. And I was like, this is, this is the best game I've watched from Jakobsen in a very long time, even if it's a very good environment for her. So, I mean, full props to her. Like, she did it in one of, of the biggest matches of her life. Like, obviously, the Olympics is not like the world cup or anything but it's to beat the us 3 no 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 one is going to forget this really the people who watch this just because i at least in women's soccer i think the olympics is taken a little more seriously if you look at the squad the united states has taken the squad that sweden has taken and then you look on the men's side the squad that spain has sent to the olympics with Ceballos and asensio like i i think this means a little more but again it's versus the us is one of the, one of the best uh, international teams in the history of football and to say that you ended the 44 win game streak like that's that's a big thing that's that's a big check mark in your legacy and Jakobsen turned up massively in that obviously the offensive side of her game but she had nuances defensively that I think were also really important that I was really impressed with this is a fantastic unit and I have to say basically every time I watch Sweden I enjoy watching them play because they have such a clear idea about what they want to do and how to execute it and then when you get individuals playing at this level against this type of opponent, I, I can't say I was sorry to, that I, I basically pulled an all-nighter to watch that, even though like I was basically dead and was like inventing tactical things that weren't actually there in the second half that I had to clear up when I, when I went back and watched on film. Hopefully, we get to see this version of Sweden going forward from, I, I guess, more of a neutral perspective. Obviously, I'm biased towards... United States, but I'm not quite where Grant is, where he's been a dedicated follower. And I'm sure he he's happy for Aslani and et cetera, et cetera. But he would much rather yeah, not maybe see now. <laughs> it took me a while to be happy for Aslani. <laughs> 
yeah, maybe let's not see this when the Sweden decide to pull up three four three and Vladko tries something he's been he's been hiding or whatever. Yeah. Let's anything see. anything else we got to touch on? Uh, do you want to just roll through some of the other games and just well touch on? I them watched. Or? I didn't watch any of them. You can say whatever you want to say about those games. Yeah. So right after that, I watched Canada and um, Japan. Christine Sinclair made her 300th appearance, fourth person in history to do that, and then scored her 187th international goal, extending her lead at the top of the charts. Brazil beat China 5-0. Martha and Dabinia, what are you going to do? I mean, those two are really good. And then Pia's defensive-mindedness going to that Brazil team. I think Brazil is one of those teams that people are maybe overlooking because they're not the U.S. or a European team. The Netherlands and Zambia play in one of the most insane games I've ever seen. The Netherlands score 10 goals. Miedema might have already wrapped up the golden boot with four goals in that match. And then Barbara Banda scores a hat trick against the Netherlands, which I can't think of many people who have ever done that or at least done it recently. So that was an extremely weird game where I don't even know how much you can take from it. Obviously, we know the Netherlands can score a bunch of goals, but the defensive solidity and the goalkeeping for both sides, both goalkeepers misplayed balls and let the other team just walk them in. It was it was a really strange game. Australia and New Zealand played. Australia wins 2-1, and this is in Group G, so what the U.S. and Sweden are dealing with. New Zealand didn't really look a threat at all until they snagged one at the end. And then you could probably guess where Australia's goals came from. Sam Kerr assisted the first, and then Sam Kerr scored a really, really nice flick header off a set piece. I think that is all of the games. And then we've got a couple days until we're back up at the crack of dawn to do it all again. Yeah, July 24th. For Real Madrid fans, that's Sweden, Australia at 4.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we'll uh, see if I, I want to, I don't know, get up, stay up for that one. because I'll be my up initial for all pl- of them, so follow along <laughs> on Twitter. My initial plan was to DVR it, and then at 3 a.m., Grant gets a message from me. He's like, well, I guess I'm not doing that. I might feel a little less motivated because the United States is playing at 7.30 a.m. Yeah, I feel bad for New gives... Zealand. I think that <laughs> the revenge tour is going to start and they might get a beating. Yeah, so guys, schedule that however you want to schedule it. We will look to continue to do these. I mean, we, it, would be, it, it would be an understatement to say that we both Grant and I have a lot on our plates at the moment, which feels really weird when it's the offseason. We will look to do these just after every round and going into the knockouts because we're going to assume Sweden are making it that far. Um, I think they've not, already we'll, qualified. They've already qualified? Like, uh, oh, I think only... not, not necessarily mathematically, but two of the three third-place teams go through, and one of those third-place teams is going to have a very bad goal differential because China and uh, oh, right, okay. Zambia got walloped. So I think that, I mean, they're in the knockout stage. Yeah, so, okay, so we'll, we're just going to do it as, as far as that goes. And then, um, I don't know, maybe we, we might talk about the final just because just larger interest in women's football as a whole. But uh, if we don't catch a particular round immediately after, we'll just combine it with the next time we can do yeah. it. So no biggie. 
and you can get your updates. We write pieces about every Sweden and Aslani performance throughout the tournament. So you, you can find that on the Managing Madrid website if we aren't timely enough for you with the podcast. We'll see what I do with my newsletter and how I continue to write about these games. For now, the one I have is on Sweden, United States, why Sweden were so good and what the United States could have done differently and build up to beat them. We'll plan, obviously, closer to when the actual season starts to talk about all the transfers. We haven't forgot about that, guys. So stuff is coming down the line. We took a bit of an enforced break for some of the other stuff that that was going on and is still going on. But we're looking to make time for these. So more Olympic content, award show podcast, and then for sure one on transfers slash kind of season preview type stuff before the season kicks off. And then the content is just basically dictated by post-match stuff. So Grant... Thanks for doing this one. It was fun to talk about football with you again. And uh, yeah, discuss this line playing at her best with Sweden. We'll catch you guys later. On Madrid. On Madrid.